This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Uh, whether you agree with his politics or not, you have to admit Justin Trudeau is a very personable guy who knows what his communication strengths are. He can walk into a room, roll up his sleeves, grab a cordless mic, and take command of a town hall while using his primary teaching skills when discipline is required. It has worked endlessly for him until now. But sooner or later, you have to back it up with more than quick flippant remarks and challenges to the credibility of the person asking the question. Another example occurred in Edmonton when a female student questioned Question Trudeau about his policy around the funding of religious organizations. During her address, she used the term mankind to make her point. Trudeau interrupted her and said, We like to say people kind, not necessarily mankind. It's more inclusive. People kind? Who says that? Oxford Dictionary? Mankind. Human beings considered collectively the human race. This is a classic communication strategy to discredit the person who is asking a question that the PM may not want to answer, as if to say, how dare you ask such a shallow question? The crowd reacted to Trudeau's point and and red-faced, the student felt the need to change her terminology. He put a nice bow on her uncomfortable moment by saying, we can all learn from each other. He might as well have told the girl to stand in the corner sporting a dunce cap. I understand the need for political correctness and education on issues moving forward. But for me, this is overkill from a father figure born with silver spoon in mouth. I'm tired of being talked down to by the prime minister for being Canadian and his elitism that constantly judges hardworking taxpayers is wearing thin. How about focusing on the issues that really matter to Canadians and what it takes on a daily basis for the average family to make ends meet? I can look after my own morals. Here is an actual clip of what the Prime Minister had to say. I came here today to ask you to also look into the policies that religious charitable organizations have in our legislation so that it can also be changed because maternal love is the love that's going to change the future of mankind. So we'd like you to look uh, we, we, we like to say people kind, not necessarily mankind, because uh, yeah. it's more inclusive. There we go, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, thank you. We can all learn from each other. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think it's smug. Uh, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR, pop culture expert, principal Alyssa Freeman PR. She is with us now. Alyssa, how are you today? Well, I'm fine, Scott, and kudos on that fabulous post. It has tons of comments and lots of shares, so congrats. Well, and you know what? I wanted to thank you for uh, the last engagement we had on this show. I got lots of comments about that and uh, and, and what we were talking about, and, and, uh, and people really enjoyed the fact that the two of us went at each other and yet still seemed to, uh, you know, have mutual respect for each other. Well, thank goodness for that. <laughs> yes, exactly. So again, you know, I wasn't sure how you were going to react to this because to me, and you know, here I am speaking, not for you, but certainly what I've learned from people like you, that this is a typical communication strategy to discredit the person who's asking the question. Am I out of bounds in saying that? No, I don't think you are. But I have to say that, uh, you know, I don't know if he was being so strategic at that, that at that moment. That is a communication strategy that a lot of people use. I mean, how often have you been in a meeting and somebody discredits something you say? Not that they necessarily know more, but you know, they just want to make you feel bad. You know, that happens. Well, it happens. It people, happens but. in this job all the time because I ask a lot of questions. So then people will turn around and start asking me questions. It's like I'm not the expert here. I'm here to ask you. Well, exactly. So people get all defensive about that, and you know. <laughs> 
let's dial back a bit. So town halls. Town halls have always been a strength of Trudeau's, really. I mean, when he got out there and showed himself to be the people person, I'm just like you, uh, sunny days, sunny ways, I want to make the middle class stronger, okay, great. And you saw how well he did, he, uh, how well he used to do in them. But you know what? The veneer seems to be off. And I have to think a couple of things. The veneer's off and he's ramping it up. Well, and, well uh, to, to his own detriment. I mean, he's doing it to himself. Often when you get in these crisis situations, Scott, it's not, yes, somebody else may uh, motivate it or spur it on, but often companies or people do it to themselves. And in this case, Trudeau did it to himself. Now, first of all, you have to look back. Okay, well, where is his communications team in this? I mean, you know, he is pretty, prime ministers, political figures are often very, very tightly reined in through communications. So, and, and strategic communications and avoiding those crisis situations. So typically what someone like myself will do is say, okay, you're going to go do this. Here is all, here are all the questions you could potentially get asked. Let's talk about the answers and how you're going to approach them. So everybody should be, you know, communications team would never let their man or their woman get, you know, send them out to the wolves in order to be devoured. There would always be uh, a communication session and strategically how do you answer questions you would talk about tone you would talk about language you would talk about being empathetic and appealing to your audience and relating to your audience so all of those things are covered including what do you wear yeah right mm-hmm. so so there's that we now, can see that with the socks well there you go so, you know, there's that. So when I look at some of these past faux pas, and we have talked about, you know, the bumbling press conference, the scrum that Trudeau was in a few weeks ago, and, and, and other things that, you know, make one wonder, is he listening to his team? Like, you have to believe that who's in there, uh, Gerald Butts and Katie Telford. I mean, you, these two are professionals. I mean, you know, they know how to prepare somebody. Um, is Trudeau listening to them, or is he just deciding, well, you know, on the spur of the moment, this is how I'm going to approach things, and, you know, to heck with all of that. And that's what I think is happening. Uh, I remember before he was elected and having many, over the course of the election campaign, many political science professors on and such, and, and, and a lot said that there just wasn't a lot there. One even used the term vacuous. Uh, during the campaign, Harper said he's not ready. Uh, then, obviously, he got elected w- with uh, a majority, and, and that's all history, sort of say. Um, but that being said, the selfies, the charisma, the town hall sort of games that he plays, um, now pe- th- th- I think that's starting to resonate with people, and they're slowly realizing there's not a lot there. And what they're dealing with is just an extension of campaigning. I mean, this is what he was doing during the campaign. And I think after a couple of years, it's worn thin, and there's just, it's all form and no substance. Well, you know, it's interesting. And, and, I, and I wonder how, if that is really resonating. I know it's really resonating with the media, and I know it's really resonating with people who are dyed-in-wool conservatives, but I don't know if it's completely resonating with those who are liberal. No, because he makes, you know, for the most part, he's made Canadians feel good. He's made them feel proud of their country. He's been a great front man, as I've said. But now it's moved to, now he's speaking for us. Now he's telling us, this is what we say. This is, and it's like, sorry, pal, that's not how I say, how I talk, and that's not what I say. So I think he's gone from team captain to now he's sort of overstepping his bounds. I honestly think that he believes that there's nothing wrong with what he's saying or what he's doing. 
The problem is, is that it's coming off very smugly. And when I listen to that clip... And that you bad know, word, that's elitism, elite. I mean, that's, that's the way this is playing. Well, and, and, and therein lies the narratives that I think that the um, conservatives will certainly jump on when they're looking on how they start to talk about Trudeau in, in the months and the years leading up to the up to the next federal election. And this may be one that plays. You know, pr- prior to this, Trudeau was fairly untouchable. And when they tried to say that he wasn't ready and they did some attack ads early on in the game, knowing that, you know, he, uh, he would be a front runner, people, they didn't like that. They felt that they were being mean and that they, should, they shouldn't um, discredit him as this. So it'll be interesting to see how they jump all over this narrative. And I'm sure that they're already testing it in, in certain polling that's uh, likely going on now. But, you know, I think what we need to look forward to is that we know that Trudeau is going to be in the States and he's doing um, a few conferences there. I believe that there's one in Chicago and I think there's three others going on and I want to see how that persona is going to play south of the border, because I think he's really going to take it on the chin with respect to NAFTA. And he seems to get a little thin-skinned as uh, when he um, somebody asked him a question about veterans and they didn't like his answers and answer, and he immediately attacked the crowd for their reaction to, to his answer of the, yeah. to the question. And honestly, you know, that's not what you do. You don't start fighting back at a mob, at an angry mob. Yeah, really. So I think that we need to see how this is all going to play south at the border because whenever Trudeau is receiving bad press up here, you know, north of the border in Canada, what's the first thing that they do? Some international journalist will uh, interview Trudeau to this laudatory and this gushingly positive uh, article about him typically pitting him against, well, he's not Trump and he's Trudeau and isn't, aren't Canadians lucky to have him. And that, is, that narrative has still been playing, you know, for the past, you know, two, three years already. But I'm wondering if it will still play and it will really depend on what his performance is going to be like south of the border. And I will tell you that I'm sure his team is corralling and saying, listen, don't go correcting people. Hmm. Uh, this is already over Fox News. Uh, you can imagine how they jumped on this. Uh, does that work in his favor with his base? Because he can say, well, Fox News is talking about it, so they're not credible. So obviously, if more proof I'm right, and you guys are stupid for even bringing this up. This is the pre-press you don't want when you're about to embark on a tour of the states and do these conversations. Not at all. Fox News, it, you know, no matter what you may think of it, is very, very powerful, and they've got lots of viewers mm-hmm. that believe whatever they, whatever they you know, hear on Fox News. So if Fox News is already starting to poke fun at Trudeau, this does not set a great stage for him because they're already going to paint him uh, as an elitist, as somebody who's you know, definitely out of touch with you know, the, the, the common man or woman. So this is not the press that you want when you're coming into this type of strategy. Uh, that being said, Canada is still a great place. How do they separate Trudeau from the country? Well, that's going to be interesting on how that narrative plays. So, you know, if you're being asked questions about NAFTA, I don't think that people care that Canada is a great place, quite honestly. I think that they're going to be seen as not um, aligning with uh, Trump's vision of what NAFTA or what this agreement should be. So I I think that's all off the table, quite frankly, Scott. 
So how do you think this is going to play out in Canada? Do you th- not so much the U.S. visit, but what he has said here. Uh, is, is anybody going to care about this, or is this a, a sign of what he's like? I think it really is a sign of what he's like. But listen, people who like him will like him, and they don't care. Yeah. All they're, th- all they're going to say is... But will they start using the word people kind? Like, even if you like the guy or not. Yeah, and again, and again I, have, I have no problem with him. I don't, I don't necessarily agree with his politics, but I think he's a great front man for the band. But at the end of the day, I don't say people kind. I and know, I, and but I'm you guessing, know what, mo- and I'm guessing most of his base doesn't either. We have, though, didn't we just put forth a motion to change the words of the national anthem? <laughs> so, you know, maybe he thinks that even well, we're even not in say all my son's command and e- say what is it all even my th- e- command even that makes more sense than this does. I mean, this is just over yeah, but I the. Think that he draws a direct line to the, all of that. This and that we're it, gender. Well, I think he's about yeah. to find where the line just was because he stepped over it. Like I really think that that's one thing, and you'll get support for that. I mean, e- e- there's been support building for that for the for the national anthem for a while. But this, come on, we say people kind there's two problems there there's no such word as the word people kind and we don't say that and he's you don't don't you have a copy of the trudeau dictionary he's speaking (laughs) he's speaking for us and that's not how we speak but honestly you know i think that he draws a bit of a correlation between well if we're going to gender neutrify the national anthem then certainly you know he jumped all over something that said, you know, when he heard the word mankind and thought, oh, no, 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 we don't say that anymore. And honestly, if you ask him, he'd probably look you in the eye and say, well, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Well, of course he doesn't. I mean, you know, he's lived, he's grown up a completely different life than the rest of us. Let's be serious. And here. I think that people do recognize that. But it'll be interesting to see if he continues to, uh, along with that smug rapport, that smug narrative, the, listen, Scott, when you're the smartest guy in the room, there's one of two ways to do it. You can make people feel like idiots, or you can just talk smart, give facts, and show that you're an expert on the subject. So, you know, when you don't feel in control, there's all sorts of devices that if you don't feel in control of the answer, you know, in communications, you know, we call it blocking and bridging. Mm. You know, you say, well, you know, one thing, and then B, go into the next point of view. And that's, a lot of people use that in contentious interviews. It's, you know, the same technique that could be used anywhere, quite honestly, even in a town hall. I think the tone had a lot to do with this, too. You know, again, it's similar to the the press release we were talking about with uh, Elizabeth May the the last time you were on. You know, it's not so so much about what they were trying to say. It's the tone in which it was said. And, you know, I understand where he's going. And, you know, maybe this was just a bad joke for him. And, you know, it was a long lead up to the question. It was like four minutes leading into the question and such. And maybe he was trying to break the ice but again I can't you know I just can't get it out of my head him saying you know we don't do that that's not how we play that's not how we roll that's not what we do and that's BS well I think the other the other factor is this is how the speed of which you know one word can derail an entire town hall and take over the narrative that's because there is no such word Alyssa oh I understand that but my point is is that you know, politicians are uh, prime ministers, anybody in power is under such scrutiny that any ridiculous gaffe, even though he might not have thought it was a gaffe at the time, because, you know, you go back to that clip and what happened? He said, mankind. And she goes, oh, people kind. And she goes, oh, of course. 
and then the rest well, that's of the audience she's standing... were you clapping. Yeah, but she's yeah, but I mean, how intimidated would she have been there? She's just been called down by the by the oh, prime well, minister. Oh, of course. You know, you you have she to would have be there. She would be there. She would exactly. Say, that is the most ridiculous thing. I mean, it would even been been more interesting. Yeah, I mean, if she had stood up and said, "People kind," who the yeah. hell says that? Then we'd have a clip. Then you'd have a clip. But listen, you know, when did this happen? This happened the other day, and it has the problem for the liberals right now that the communication staff is worrying about is that we are 48 hours into this story. Mm. You know, the burn of a story is... It's just taken off. Well, exactly. is usually a couple hours. I, I would have told you 24 hours five years ago. But the burn of a story now in this 24-7 news universe is quick. It's quick, and it might get reported on, and then that's it. But because it's been, because it's been, it's taken off, because other news outlets have jumped on it, because people like yourself are starting now to write columns about it, you know, well after the fact, this story is continuing to play for, you know, heaven forbid, if you're in the communications um, office there, for 36 and 72 hours, long when it should have it should have uh, dissipated. You know, and we can keep this all in perspective and say, who cares? Really, who cares? You're making a big stink about this. But on the other hand, that's what he's doing. He's focusing on issues that nobody cares about. Focus on issues that have a concern of a family trying to make ends meet in this country. Well, the other thing, too, is is that more and more people like yourselves... Um, hosts and, and columnists are now really starting to go on a Trudeau gaff watch. And this is the last thing that anybody would ever want. I just saw something on Adrian Batra. She's the editor, uh, editor-in-chief of the Toronto Sun. And her and Anthony Fury did this three-part video on Trudeau gaffs all coming out of this town hall. Yeah. So you think that that's going to end? Yeah. No. Now the microscope is going to be on every word, every tone, every intonation, every way that he answers a question. So, you know, you can only expect more than, more of this unless he cleans up his act. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, PR and pop culture expert, principal at Alyssa, P, uh, Alyssa Freeman PR. Alyssa, thanks again, as always, for the time. Much appreciated. Okay, thank you, Scott. Thanks, bye-bye. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. What a spectacular sight it was uh, yesterday when we saw the SpaceX rocket uh, take off and then the uh, booster rockets come back down and land vertically on a, I guess it would be a launch pad or a a landing pad. Uh, Falcon Heavy successfully launched, making it the world's most powerful rocket. Some some of its payload including uh, included a Tesla Roadster. We'll talk about that as well. What exactly happened? What does it mean for space exploration? How big a deal is all of this? Uh, let's bring in Victoria Jaggard, Senior Scientist for National Geographic, and is with us now. Victoria, thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Yes, hello. Thanks for having me. So lots of rockets blast off on pretty much a regular basis, whether it's satellites or those going up to the International Space Station. How significant is this launch in comparison to everything else? Uh, So this launch in particular, it's being hailed as a historic milestone, in part because this particular rocket is, as you said, the world's most powerful operating rocket. is uh, comparable in what it can carry into space at uh, and beyond Earth orbit 
to the Saturn V, which is the giant NASA rocket that took humans to the moon. So, uh, in comparison, is is this the biggest um, feat since, say, the space shuttle? Uh, I don't know that I'd take it quite that far. It's a pretty big deal specifically for SpaceX, for sure, and for the idea of commercial spaceflight, being able to do this without uh, necessarily 100% backing of the federal government. This is a private company, and while they have contracts with NASA, they are doing a lot of this work with their own funds, trying to make space more accessible, in part by making these rockets reusable, which is what bringing those boosters back down in this way is supposed to address. So what is the relationship between SpaceX and Mars, uh, uh, and, and SpaceX and NASA, sorry, and, and, and what, is, what is that agreement, what is that arrangement like? At the moment, SpaceX has a contract with NASA. They are working with them on their commercial uh, crew capabilities for getting, right now, cargo, and hopefully, fingers crossed, astronauts up to the International Space Station. They've still got a ways to go to getting their rockets ready to carry people. But the Falcon Heavy in particular is a great move for being able to show that they can get really heavy scientific equipment up into orbit and send it deeper into the solar system. Do they need this rocket in order to get people up there? Is this the biggest thing or the next thing they have for the transportation of people? That was initially how they were thinking of it. Uh, The latest from Elon Musk, uh, as he was telling our reporter at the press conference yesterday, is that they're actually thinking Falcon Heavy is going to be mostly used for satellites and space probes, and they're going to jump right to their next big rocket, uh, what he calls the Big Falcon Rocket, or BFR, to uh, address the needs of getting people into space. So uh, what would be the difference between that and the one that went up yesterday? How much bigger? How much? What, because, again, you know, Russian rockets are taking people up to the International Space Station all the time. Are, are they that far behind? Oh, no, not at all. The, the Russian rockets that are currently taking people up to space are they're actually old. less powerful. Yeah. They're old and yeah. they're technically less powerful. They're, they're not what we call a heavy lift mm-hmm. vehicle. Uh, what... So do we have the capability? Do do we have the capability? I guess the point I'm making is, do we have the capability now, uh, or or with a little work, actually doing our own transportation of astronauts to the International Space Station? That is what we're working toward. Right Right. now, we are relying on the Russians to ferry us up there. Uh, NASA has their own uh, crew capsule in the works. It's called the Orion. It's undergoing tests right now, and they have their own giant rocket called the Space Launch System, or SLS, that they are hoping to use to send people to the ISS. And, of course, they're still working with SpaceX and the Falcon 9 rocket, the sort of smaller version of the Falcon Heavy, uh, with potentially getting that ready for sending people so will NASA ever use a SpaceX, ro- a SpaceX rocket to send astronauts to the International Space Station, or would it always be their own, or would they contract that out? Uh, it's entirely possible they would use SpaceX. Perhaps one of their competitors, like Blue Origin, for mm-hmm. instance, is in the running. They have contracts with all of these uh, private companies with the idea that the private companies can help them get the sort of basic up and down, back and forth taxiing to space. At a, at a cheaper cost level if they can prove that their rockets are safe. That's really the big deal with the Falcon Heavy. It's fantastic that they got it up, that it's working. Now they need to prove reliability. Where it work again and how safe is it going to be? Were a lot of scientists surprised that this went off as flawlessly as it appeared to? 
I certainly was surprised, and I'm no scientist, but I, I was kind of thinking it was a 50-50 shot that it would explode on the launch pad. I have heard others say that that they were surprised it it went it 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 lifted off and then the, the mission complete with the booster rockets landing back on the on the landing pad. That the fact that well did this go off without a hitch or was there the odd flaw? There was a flaw. Uh, there were actually three rockets that were supposed to come back on a landing. The the two that I think a lot of people saw that came down near simultaneously. Those were the side boosters that went off beautifully. The core booster, central core, was supposed to land on a drone ship out in the water. Uh, we didn't see the feed of that. It cut off right before the landing, but the reports afterward are that it failed spectacularly oh, and landed no. into the ocean at 300 miles an hour. Wow. Is that why we may not see the pictures, or will we see pictures of that eventually? That's up to SpaceX. Hmm. Uh, so what does this mean for the future moving forward? Why was this important? It's important because it, it's setting the stage for being able to carry these really heavy objects into space, hopefully at a lower cost. A SpaceX rocket is already much cheaper than some of its competitors as mm-hmm. far as getting satellites and space probes up because they've been emphasizing reusability above all else. They can bring their rocket stages back. They've successfully proved this. They can use them again. They've successfully proved that. Now they're saying we can do it with even bigger rockets carrying even more stuff. What were your thoughts when you saw those two boosters land? Oh my gosh, the whole thing was a daze. It was, wasn't it? It was almost like watching an old Twilight Zone episode. I mean, if it was was in black and white, it, it would have been. It feels like something straight out of science fiction, and even more so when you're watching the live feed of that Tesla Roadster now orbiting the sun. <laughs> okay, let's talk about that, too. Uh, um, does this say more about Elon Musk than it does anything? Uh, I, there's been a lot of controversy over that sports car. There's a lot of people debating what does it mean why is he doing this? What's the loss potentially to science? Could he not have sent a payload up? You know, as I mentioned before, I think even Elon was feeling there's a good chance this thing could explode. Would you really want to put something on the top of it that people had spent a lot of time and money on that needed to be in a particular orbit to do a job? This way, he's sending something up that is in his mind disposable. What that says about Elon Musk is a whole other conversation. Wow. I'd like to stick to the science over the psychology. Uh, it was very odd watching him talk about that because he said, wouldn't it be really weird if this happened? And then he turned around and did it. So uh, yeah. what what does that say about the man who is behind all of this? What can you tell us about the man? Uh, not a lot, to be honest. I have never met him in person. I have definitely seen him speak uh, He's got a lot of interesting ideas about what this means for the future of humanity. When you walk out of a room after hearing him speak, what are you thinking? I don't even know. <laughs> so it's that far So many thoughts at the same time. He's got a lot of really like ambitious ideas and a lot of ambitious goals, and you have to give SpaceX a lot of credit for what they've been able to accomplish to this point. They've set milestones over the last decade as far as being the first among private industry to be able to achieve things within spaceflight. 
some of his ideas about colonizing Mars, about AI, still seem a little far-fetched to me, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. How much credibility does this give him, the fact that this all worked? Within the spaceflight industry, tons, I'm sure. Well, talk a little bit more about the car, uh, where it was mounted, how he did this. Like, what? how, how does he get this thing up in space? <laughs> the, and we should say it's a, it's a Tesla convertible with a, uh, a mannequin or a dummy astronaut behind the wheel. But other right. than that, it's just a standard car, correct? Uh, the the word on the street is that it was his personal Midnight Cherry Tesla Roadster. Oh, so for all we know, it could have been a bad used car. He may have he may have finished with it by the time uh, you know it may not even been in working order by the time he strapped it to the top <laughs> of the rocket. So how uh, so you know uh, w- at what point is the car exposed? Is it literally sitting on the top of the outside of the rocket when it's lifting off? How does this work? The car is mounted on a platform. It's up at a slight angle uh, on this staging platform, basically. And that platform was inside the top of the rocket, the the payload fairing, they call it, that split open. So during during launch, it was covered? Yes. Correct. Okay, go ahead. So during launch, it's covered up by this uh, payload fairing. When the final rocket sent it up into orbit, and then the booster falls away, and then the fairing opens up, and out pops this platform bearing a Tesla Roadster with a mannequin behind the wheel. Did anybody know this was going to happen? Oh yeah, he's so you knew. So you knew when it you knew when it opened up, you were going to see a car. Exactly. Wow. Um, so, uh, so okay. So the 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 boosters come down. What happens to the rest of this? What happens to the car? It, what what happens now? It just, it's out there floating around? It is out there. It is on an orbit so that it is technically going around the sun, just like we are. Uh, It was supposed to go in what's called a Holman transfer orbit, where it would sort of cycle between the paths of Mars and Earth. Uh, The final firing didn't go entirely as planned. And so while it is on an orbit around the sun, it's going to go uh, toward the asteroid belt instead. And what does that mean? Just that it'll be floating out there potentially for millions of years, going on a nice lazy trip around the sun. So you're sitting there up in the International Space Station just minding your own business, and all of a sudden Elon Musk's toy floats by. I mean, as far-fetched as that sounds, help us out in layman's terms. Is that what's happening here? For a short while yesterday, that is absolutely what was happening. It was on a six-hour phase orbiting the Earth before the final rocket burn sent it deeper out into the solar system. Right. And you could watch the live feed, and you could see the moon going by. You could see Earth in the background. Yeah. Kind of unreal. So, uh, will he collect any? Continue to collect information from this, or is it? It's gone. It's a dud. It's out there. Uh, once it reaches a certain point, we're not going to get any more feeds off of the camera, and that's that'll be it, basically. As far as I know, unless I, I haven't been told this, I don't take my word, I don't know about any kind of tracking that they've put on the sucker, but they have a pretty good idea of what the orbital dynamics should be like. So, so what condition do you think the car's going to be in? Like, will we slowly see it deteriorate, or will it just stay in its normal, as its normal self until the feed dies? <laughs> 
Uh, until the feed dies, it'll probably look exactly like what it looks like right now, a nice shiny red car. How can uh, a nice shiny... Time, of course, it's going to... It's going to pit with... It's going to... I was going to say, yeah. it's going to be pitted with meteorites? It's going gonna, it's gonna to see some damage. By the time it makes it around the sun and back in our vicinity, it, it's going to be a mess, I'm sure, if it even makes it that far. Wow. Unbelievable. Uh, so uh, what happens now? Where uh, Obviously, it went up. Two of the three uh, boosters came back. Uh, it, that, that's obviously a good sign. It was a successful day for Elon Musk. Now, what would he do next? What's the next step in this? For the Falcon Heavy specifically, the next step is proving that they can do it again. Because if they want to ever do put something on there more meaningful than a Tesla Roadster, then they need to prove that they're not going to lose whatever spacecraft they want to carry. How do you balance cost-effectiveness with safety in this game? And reliability, uh, for that matter. Yeah, I'm sure... Especially for places like NASA, it's always safety first. They go through a lot of a lot of testing and a lot of reuse to make sure that something is viable for even a, a spacecraft, much less people. You you go through a, even more intense rounds of testing if you want to be able to ever put humans on your spacecraft. They call it being man rated. Is that, that takes a lot of work? Um, is safety as much a priority for, for a private company as it is for NASA? I mean, I'm guessing this is like the airline business. It would have to be. Yeah, gosh, I would hope so. So how does NASA feel about this as an organization? Because at one time it was them driving this ship and, and they were flying to the moon and they were flying the, the space shuttles and such. Is it a good thing that private industry is on board like this or... Does this give less credibility to NASA? Oh, I'm sure NASA must be very pleased to be working with places like SpaceX and Blue Origin because it's helping them out, being able to do some of what you can call perhaps the more routine elements of spaceflight, actually getting communication satellites in the low Earth orbit, actually being able to get humans back and forth from the ISS. That's a massive part of their budget that then they won't have to spend on that, and they can be doing some of the more wild and ambitious things like sending flyby missions to Jupiter's moons and continuing to explore Mars. Uh, those of us that are old enough to remember a uh, man landing on the moon and then the space shuttle series, uh, I remember sitting in school and watching this thing land for the first time and thinking, oh my goodness. Um, are people still as mesmerized about space and exploration, space exploration, as they were back in the space race days? My sense is that it, we're a little more jaded, I think, especially with the space shuttles. There was a point where the very first space shuttle was probably the most exciting thing you ever would have witnessed, seeing it go up and, and then glide back down at Kennedy Space Center. And then there came a point where you were like, oh, it's another space shuttle launch. I remember yeah. that. I remember that because my parents had a place in Florida at the time, and they said there's rockets going up all the time. And I remember them, oh, we're going to watch a liftoff. And then it was, ah, another one went up today, we heard it. Another one went up. Like, they were going up so often, it was like a common occurrence. But see, that's exactly what SpaceX wants to work toward. Yeah. They want to make it a common occurrence. They want to make it something where it's as simple as getting on a plane, taking a trip, and coming back home again. Unbelievable. Uh, will we? How soon before we start really hearing things about a realistic journey to Mars, even if it is unmanned? How far is that away? 
You mean as far as SpaceX goes or just in general? Uh, For SpaceX, you know, they they talk an ambitious game as far as their timeline, but, you know, bear in mind, even with the Falcon Heavy, which was a spectacular launch, that had already run into delays by years. Hmm. That was anticipated a while ago, and the fact that they did it now is fantastic. It still speaks really well to their capabilities, but that's just oftentimes the nature of this business. Victoria, has, uh, Victoria Jaggard has been with us from National Geographic. Yesterday, SpaceX rocket uh, Falcon Heavy successfully launched, making it the world's more, most powerful rocket, uh, included with a Tesla Roadster mounted to the top. Uh, Victoria, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Yeah, absolutely. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. According to a new report, 4 out of 10 young Canadians have sent a sext well, 6 in 10 said they have received one. Uh, interesting study coming out of the people from Media Smarts. Let's bring in Matthew Johnson, Director of Education for Media Smarts. Uh, he is with us now. Matthew, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. My pleasure. Tell everybody what Media Smarts is. Media Smarts is Canada's Centre for Digital and Media Literacy. And what that is is that we do research on uh, what Canadian young people are doing uh, online and their experiences and attitudes towards their online experiences, and we use that uh, research to develop resources for parents, teachers, and young people to help them navigate all of the media and digital issues that they face in their lives. Give us a definition of sexting. Well, sexting can mean a lot of different things, um, and it's not necessarily even a term that young people use, but in this study we asked specifically about uh, sending by electronic means nude, semi-nude, or sexy photographs. And we focused on photographs because really that is where uh, there's the most potential harm when one of these is shared beyond the original audience. Is it mostly photographs or is it text as well? Well, we don't know that from our data um, because we didn't ask about uh, texts. Certainly, some of the research that's been done around the world uh, has found that uh, young people send uh, as many or more uh, sexual texts than photos. But again, that's something that generally doesn't have the same kind of impact when it gets shared, and so we didn't uh, focus on that. Are you surprised of the numbers here, of how many? It is somewhat surprising. We did... um, a study with a younger cohort a couple of years ago where we were looking at uh, kids aged 12 to 17. Um, and we found much lower numbers, certainly for the younger age uh, range of that age, or age of that range, rather. Um, when we compare the overlap, 16 and 17, we do find that the numbers for this study are a little bit higher. Um, they're not enormously higher. Um, what was interesting to us, though, was that we found that while the oldest participants in this study were significantly more likely than the youngest ones to have sent or received the text, the same wasn't true with sharing them, um, that uh, when you count out the ones who had never received a sext and obviously didn't have a chance to share one, we actually found that uh, the 16-year-olds were more likely to have shared a sext than the 20-year-olds. So how many sexts you've received really has very little to do with whether or not you've shared one. And we found similarly that those that had sent 10 sexts were not that much more likely to have had one shared by someone else than those that had only sent one. 
So what's the reasoning behind sending these? Well, there are a variety of reasons why you send them. Um, that's not something that we went into deeply in our research. I, I guess I should have sent. I, I should have sent share. I, sh- I should have oh, said sharing, sharing them. Okay. I meant sharing well, them. I'm sorry. Well, what we found was that there were a couple of factors that were strongly connected to whether or not someone had shared a sext. One of them was what we might call peer pressure. So if um, you knew for certain that your close friends had shared sex. If you thought your close friends expected you to share any sex you receive with them, or if you expected your friends to share sex they received with you, with you, then there was a much greater likelihood that you would have shared a sex. We also found that uh, believing in traditional gender stereotypes, attitudes towards gender, uh, for instance, the idea that uh, men were naturally more motivated by sex than women, or that uh, women should not be as concerned about their careers as men. Um, young people who held these attitudes strongly were actually five times more likely to have shared a sex than those that did not. What does and that finally, say? What does that say? Well, what it says is really what we um, uh, suspected based, again, on research that's been done around the world, which is that gender and attitudes towards gender are a really important part of why young people who are sharing sex seem to not see it as being wrong, even though it's clearly harmful behavior, that they rationalize it, and this was the last thing that we looked at, they rationalize it, they justify it to themselves, among other ways, by saying that uh, it was the person's own fault for sending the sex in the first place, because they had... Um, you know, violated, she had violated gender norms, she had uh, given up in their eyes the right to consent or not consent to having the photo shared. So in other words, if you're sharing with someone, they'll share with the rest of the world. Well, that doesn't always happen, um, but uh, certainly that is a risk. That's how, they're justi- that. that's how they justify yeah, it, though. That's, that's certainly how they see it, yeah. So, based are, on our research. so are the kids aware of the ramification? I shouldn't say kids, I guess, but are they aware of the ramifications? Yeah. You know, our evidence was that they were aware um, because we found that, um, in general, they didn't feel uh, that it was okay for someone to share a sex to them, even if they themselves had shared sex. And we also asked them if they would feel more comfortable sending sex if they had total control over what happened to that sex after they sent it. So if they could be guaranteed that no one but the original recipient would see it, and half the sample said they would. So definitely they are concerned about their privacy. They're aware of the risks. Um, I think what we see happening is that what's going through the minds of the kids receiving the sex is not uh, something that the kids sending the sex are necessarily aware of. And mm. we do find it's a, a, it's a core group. It's maybe a third um, of the kids in the sample who are responsible for almost all of the sharing that's happening. Do they have at this age, and we, we always talk about how the technology is, is, is so far advanced for, for all of us, uh, do they have the capacity to process the re- responsibility they have in their hands? Well, that really varies. Um, certainly that's something that's developing um, in teens, and we know that. We know that's one of the reasons why, for instance, trying to get kids not to send sex or not to share sex by 
telling them about the risks um, doesn't work. So we found, for instance, that actually two-thirds of the youth in our study were aware that it was against the law in Canada to share a sext of someone, no matter their age, without mm-hmm. consent. Um, but whether they knew or not had no relationship with whether or not they had shared sex. No influence whatsoever. Hmm. Um, and, and that's what research has generally shown, is that uh, trying to change kids' behavior by scaring them or making them aware of risks is ineffective, especially with teenagers. What can work um, is telling them not to do something because it's wrong and making it clear to them why it's wrong. So in this case, what we're seeing is that attitudes towards gender and these what we call um, moral disengagement techniques are allowing kids Mm. to view something that is wrong as being acceptable. And that's really where we need to intervene with them. That's where parents and teachers need to confront these attitudes towards gender, whether they're coming from the culture at, at large, whether they're coming from mass media, whether they're coming unconsciously from parents, um, and also directly confront these moral disengagement uh, mechanisms and making it clear that there are no excuses for sharing a sex without that person's consent. Is this self-policing, or is this something that we, uh, organizations like yours, educational institutions, have to jump on? I think it's something everybody has to deal with. Uh, certainly, it's something that we provide resources to help parents and teachers deal with. So we have, for instance, a tip sheet available at our website, mediasmarts.ca, called Talking About Sexting to Your Kids, that provides some tips on how to talk to your kids, not only about why you don't want them sending sex, but also why it's not right to share sex that you've received. And that, again, is really where we think we can make a difference. It's interesting. It's I, it's yeah. interesting. I, I talked to uh, a, a sex expert therapist on about this, and, 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 and frequently it, it entails things that are online. And uh, what she said is kids have a very uh, jaded view of what sexual relationships are because of the access that they have to material, you know, pornography, whatever. Um, and they don't realize that these are productions. These are these are made just like every other movie is made with a with a uh, a motive in mind. And this isn't necessarily how real life works. Are those the same sort of lessons we have to teach when it comes to sexting? Absolutely, and that is a you know one of the fundamental lessons of media literacy is making kids aware. Uh, that media are constructions, that someone made them, they don't accurately reflect reality. And things like uh, pornography can be a particular challenge because obviously it's hard to talk about them in class, and even parents don't really want to talk about these things with their kids. Um, and what the research in pornography has found is that it does have an influence on how kids behave, on how anyone who watches it behaves. It's the same kind of influence that we see in any kind of sexualized media, um, and just a little bit more extreme. And that's why, again, it is so important that we be addressing these uh, gender stereotypes, these attitudes towards gender, helping kids to challenge them and question them, and uh, making sure that they're not uh, using them to justify sharing sex. Uh, recently, uh, YouTuber Logan Paul uh, uh, puts a video out on his uh, site uh, that involves uh, someone who has uh, taken their life by suicide. 
uh, obviously public backlash to that um, and so on and so forth. Uh, kids who identify with this person, do they learn from this? Do they understand this? Well, I think it's certainly possible. Uh, I mean, that's an area where I think a lot more research needs to be done is how much kids are influenced by, uh, you know, YouTube celebrities and Instagram influencers where there is a lot more of a sense of, of intimacy than there is with traditional media um, because kids are using these platforms themselves. Many of them are posting YouTube videos uh, and posting comments on YouTube videos. Many of them, of course, if they're seeing influencers' posts on Instagram, they're participating as well. We don't know yet uh, to what extent these may be more or less influential on youth because uh, of the ways in which they're different from traditional media. What advice do you have for parents who are listening to this uh, right now, Matthew, and maybe concerned? What sort of discussion, what, what guidelines should they offer for their kids? Well, I think the most important thing is really to communicate to your kids uh, what your values are when it comes to how you expect them to behave. Um, and that means that when you're talking about sexting, you're not just talking to girls, you're talking to boys as well. And you're not just telling them not to send sexts. Um, you're telling them, first of all, that you know, if things go wrong, uh, you, can, you can tell them you don't want them to send sex, but you can also tell them that if they do and things go wrong, you're going to have their back. You're going to help them. Because we know that a lot of girls, and sometimes boys as well, whose sex gets shared are reluctant to seek help. Um, because they're afraid that people will be upset with them, and sometimes they're afraid, wrongly in Canada, that they'll be charged criminally. Um, but we also have to be talking to uh, our daughters and our sons about not sharing sex. We need to make sure that they understand that nothing someone can do, whether it's sending you a sext, whether it's cheating on you, whether it's breaking up with you, nothing they can do justifies sharing a sext they've sent you without their consent. Do you see us getting a handle on this? Are we figuring it out? I like to think so. I like to think that this research is the first step uh, because this is really something that hasn't been done before anywhere in the world is identifying um, the the attitudes and the psychological mechanisms that are associated with sharing sex. And I think this gives us a, a really positive first step towards um, reducing this really harmful be- behavior. According to a new report, four out of ten Canadians have sent a sext, while a six in ten have said they have received ones. And specifically, we're talking about youth. Uh, we've been talking to Matthew Johnson, Director of Education, Media Smarts, mediasmarts.ca, if you want more information on this. Matthew, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML.